Finance. It seems hard to learn. But is it really? Wall Street likes to overcomplicate everything money related, confusing a lot of people. Join us on this podcast as we help break down the world of money for you to understand from a relatable perspective. This is Finance Simplified. Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Rohan, and I want to welcome you to Finance Simplified, the official podcast for StreetFins. We're here to simplify finance for you, so you can actually understand it to better your future. This episode is the second episode overall, and we have a very, very special guest for this episode, Howard Marks, with whom we'll be simplifying the topics of risk and market cycles in investing. Howard is the billionaire co-founder and co-chairman at Oaktree Capital, the largest distressed securities investor in the world, managing more than $120 billion. I couldn't be more excited for our upcoming discussion. Howard is pretty much an investing legend any way you put it. Howard co-founded Oaktree Capital in 1995 after having worked at the TCW Group. Howard is perhaps most well-known for his writings. He has authored two bestsellers on investing, The Most Important Thing, and most recently, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. But beyond books, the thing that Howard is most respected for are his memos to clients, which contain legendary investing insights. Warren Buffett, arguably the greatest investor of all time, has praised Howard Marks for his memos, and he said, and I quote, when I see memos from Howard Marks in my mail, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something. We'll definitely be talking about his memos in this episode. Howard majored in finance at Wharton and received his MBA from the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. When it comes to the best and most respected investors, you really can't get much better than Howard. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rowan. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to it. All right. So today I wanted to talk about two subjects that you're very well versed and very well respected for your knowledge in, and that is risk and market cycles. But before we get into that, could we get kind of like an intro to Oaktree Capital, kind of what distressed securities are, uh, because that's their primary focus, and how they differ from stocks and bonds and more traditional investments too? Well, Oaktree is what's called a global alternative investments manager with a specialization in credit. So we all know what global means. Alternative basically means not the basic stocks and bonds that constituted the normal media of investment up till, let's say, I don't know, plus minus 40 years ago. In the last 40 years, people have been more innovative and more open-minded. More recently, most investors need returns higher than those which are expected to come today from stocks and bonds. So many people have reached out to alternative investments to supplement their results. Oaktree is a specialist in credit, which basically means debt or lending other than to governments. Credit does not apply to governments like the U.S. Treasury. And Oaktree is a specialist in credit and in particular in distressed debt. We've been investing for the last 31 years in distressed debt. I believe that our fund was the first from a mainstream financial institution. And, um, you know, it basically means buying the, the obligations of companies that are bankrupt or expected to go bankrupt. Now, why would you lend money, in essence, to a bankrupt company? Uh, you don't expect to get paid interest, as promised. You don't expect to be paid your principal at the maturity. And why would you do it? And the answer is that if, um, under the bankruptcy system, if creditors aren't paid, they get a claim on the value of the company. And so we make investments in the debt of troubled companies if we think the claim that we will receive is worth more than the price of the debt. It's really as simple, it's as simple as that. Of course, it's not always easy to figure out which it is. The people who can do it well are the ones who succeed. All right. Thanks for that. Could you give an example of perhaps an investment in a distressed security? Perhaps. Um, so you have a bankrupt company, right? And they go to right. you, they ask for a loan, right? And then how? No, from- no, that, no that, that's not quite right. No. Companies have debt outstanding, usually in the form of bonds or notes. So we go, we, we don't do these things in, generally speaking, in association with the companies. We go into the marketplace and we buy their debt. So, you know, maybe a company issued a thousand dollar bond and maybe it's available now for 500 bucks. And if we feel that, that our claim in the bankruptcy will end up being worth 700 bucks, well, maybe we'd be willing to buy it for 500. Right. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about your history coming into the investing world. Now, how did you get started with finance and investing and how did that lead to Oaktree? 
Uh, my dad was an accountant. I took accounting in high school and I really enjoyed it. So I figured I would become an accountant. Uh, as you mentioned, I went to Wharton. Everybody told me I was lucky to get in. Probably they were right. I planned to study accounting, but once I got there, I, I was introduced to finance and I switched my major over to finance. And then after that, I went to University of Chicago, which is now called the Booth School of Business. And I there I did study accounting. Well, I had, I had learned what I needed about finance. So I went back to accounting to sharpen those skills and also studied some marketing. And when I came out of the boot school, which happened to be just 50 years ago in mid-1969, I went back to Citibank. I had had summer jobs at Citibank in 67 and 68, one of which was in the investment research department, and I enjoyed that. So I went back there in 69, and I stayed at Citibank for 16 years. I became director of research in the middle 70s, and then I switched to managing money in the bond area. Uh, and then from uh, 85 to 95, I switched to Trust Company of the West, where I met the colleagues that I co-founded Oak Tree with. And then in 95, we left TCW to start Oak Tree, as you described. So could you talk about, because I mean, I live in the Silicon Valley, and we, talk, we hear about people you know, leaving big, big companies to start their own companies all the time. Could you talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and deciding why you decided to leave TCW and start Oak Tree Capital? That's an interesting question. I was not an entrepreneurial spirit. I was not a renegade. Uh, I was perfectly happy working in large organizations, and uh, I was uh, pretty happy with the jobs I had. But in essence, you know, I mean, I believe that many cases people have positive and negative motivations. And I had the positive motivation that I thought I could uh, run my own organization and accomplish more and also make more money. And then I had the negative motivation that my employer at TCW was not necessarily treating me the greatest or letting me accomplish what I could. So positive and negative reasons for moving on. And so I did. Going back to you know your time at Wharton, right? What you mentioned that you switched majors to finance. Could you explain sort of you know what specifically kind of drew you from from I think it was accounting to finance? Well, I think I decided that accountant accounting is a technical procedural activity that you know that I could uh, do better and that I could do better in an area which is less technical and procedural and more requiring thought or innovation. And so I shifted over. I mean, basically, I decided I didn't want to be an accountant. Accounting is a terrific skill to have. It's kind of like if you if you do almost anything, you want to have the skill of being able to write English. In business, it's, it's terrific to know the principles of accounting, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to be an accountant, as I didn't. Right. It's not. Yeah. So accounting really is the language of business, but not everybody wants to, you know, right. do accounting sure. for long, for sure. Sure. So let's delve into risk now. Um, you're really known for your insightful investing philosophies that you document through your books, your memos, other interviews you've had. Uh, and one of the greatest things that you emphasize is working with risk and how to manage it. Could you just kind of define how you see risk, uh, just as an intro to hopefully a, a broader discussion about it? Well, you know, Rowan, I'm a professional investor. And I think that the difference, the distinguishing characteristic of a outstanding professional is what he or she does with regard to risk. Investing should not be just about trying to make money. It's, it's not hard to make money as an investor. That's especially true when the market goes up. And most of the time, the market goes up. So just making money cannot be the mark of a good investor. And in fact, in the years in which the market goes up, which is most years, the person who takes the most risk makes the most money. So again, it's not just returns or even high returns that distinguish a professional. To my way of thinking, a professional is someone who makes a lot of money when the market goes well, but who also, because he thought about risk and controlled the risk in his portfolio, doesn't lose a lot of money. When the market does badly, that combination is, for me, the mark of a of an outstanding professional. It's easy to make a lot of money in the good years if you're willing to lose a lot of money in the bad years. But to make a lot in the good years and not lose a lot in the bad years, I think, is a great accomplishment. It demonstrates what I call an asymmetry, an asymmetry. It's easy, like I say, 
to make a lot of money in the good years if you're willing to lose a lot of money in the bad years. But it's not much of an accomplishment. The real accomplishment is the asymmetry, the imbalance of doing well in the good years and not so badly in the bad years. So I think that risk is the hallmark. Risk management is the hallmark of an outstanding investor. And I believe that outstanding investors are people who understand, who can recognize situations where they'll make a lot of money if things go well and not lose too much if things go poorly. And again, to me, that's the kind of investments I want to make. Now, whatever I say today about investing, remember, as I know you will, that this is my personal point of view. This is what I like to think about. This is how I view things. My views are not the only correct way. There are people who say, to hell with risk management. I want to make a mint in the good years, and I'm willing to experience volatility and even losses in the bad years. You know, I'm thinking about an individual who has a fabulous track record in terms of his, his lifetime rate of return and has had some really terrible years, but his good years are off the charts. My good years aren't that great. But my bad years were quite palatable. So I produced a good return with stability and resistance to losses. And for me, that's how I want to make my way. Gotcha. So could you, could you kind of talk about the idea of volatility and risk? Like what's the, you mentioned in your book, the most important thing and some of your memos that risk is not the same thing as volatility while volatility is just a measure of it. So what's your, what are your thoughts on kind of the relationship between volatility and risk? As you suggest, when you say, uh, you know, it, it can use, be used to measure volatility, which is the degree to which the price of an asset fluctuates or the return on a portfolio fluctuates, the ups and downs can be indicative or symptomatic of the presence of risk. But what I learned at Chicago in 67, 68 was that volatility is risk. And I disagree with that. Risk to me is the probability of undesirable outcomes. Now, usually that means the probability of losing money. And if something fluctuates and has an, you know, a temporary downward move, that's volatility. But to me, that's not risk. Risk is the probability that it has a downward move and doesn't come back, you know, that, that, the, that the losses are terminal. By the way, when I say that, that risk is the probability of an undesirable outcome, there are other undesirable outcomes other than just the loss of money. For example, if you're a professional investment manager like me and the market's up 20% and the competitors are up 20% and you're up 10, that's an undesirable outcome. It, it's not that you lost money, but you, maybe you performed so badly that, that it affects your business. Maybe you have to find a new job. So there are a variety of possible negative outcomes. Losses are probably the, the obvious one and the most important one, but they're not the only one. So I think that's what risk is. And you know, when you think about it, uh, riskier investments, in my opinion, it's not that they're more volatile. But what it is, is that they're more uncertain. The range of possible outcomes is wider and the negative outcomes are worse. And for me, that's the definition of a risky investment. You, you mentioned, you know, the range of possible outcomes. Could you, I mean, and you've said in previous interviews and in your books that you tend to view the future in a, as, a, as a probability of, of different outcomes. Could you kind of talk about that, that, that mindset and that view? Yeah, I wrote a memo. You mentioned that I write memos to the clients, and and uh, the, your listeners may be interested to learn that I've been. Yeah, doing we'll it link for, that into the. We'll link that to the yeah, description. Yeah, I've been doing it for thirty years, and uh, I wrote one back in the nineties, I think it was called "Us and Them." And basically, what "Us and Them" was about was the fact that in the investment business, there are a bunch of people, many, many people, who invest based on their assessment of what the future holds, what we call the macro future, which means movements of the economy, interest rates, currencies, and uh, markets. They predict the movements of these big things and they invest on that basis. A lot of people do that, maybe most. Then there's us, and we don't do that because we don't assume we know or can predict what the market and these other phenomena are gonna do. 
when we started Oak Street, we wrote down our investment philosophy, one of the tenets of which was that our investment activities are not predicated on macro forecasts. And and we've stuck by that rigorously. We don't, you know, we don't believe we don't have an economist on staff to tell us what the economy is going to do next year. And we don't invite economists in for chats. We assume that they don't know more than we do and that we don't know what's going to be. So our official mantra is that we never know where we're going in terms of the macro future, but we sure as hell ought to know where we stand. And later on, you and I will talk about cycles, and cycles are really all about where we stand today. But anyway, some people think they can control risk by being good predictors of the macro future, and we don't. We think the future is uncertain. The goal in investing is to have superior results, and we don't think that we or Almost anybody else can do a superior job of predicting the future of the economy, currencies, commodities, and markets. Okay, yeah. So it's just really focusing on on what you know, which is you mentioned macro. So you focus really on the micro aspect, know as much as you can, and sort of leave the macro to be debated amongst the economists, sure, we, the analysts. What I say is, let's try to know the knowable. And what I think, where I think where you can get uh, an edge is knowing more than others about companies, industries, and securities. The micro, as you say, but not the macro. I, I want to learn more about kind of how you got this sort of uh, mindset and thinking and opinion of risk. You know, what what shaped your thinking about it? Well, I, I would say experience. You know, when I came out of Chicago, they taught me that risk was volatility. I, I might have believed it for a minute, but, you know, I went to work at Citibank. As I said, I had a first summer job in the research department in 1968. The bank invested in what were called the Nifty 50, the 50 stocks of the 50 best and fastest growing companies in America, companies that were so terrific that they were worth any price and nothing bad could ever happen. IBM, Xerox, Kodak, Polaroid. Perkin Elmer, Hewlett Packard, Texas Instruments, Avon, Coca-Cola, AIG, on like that. And if you got there the day I did in June of 1968, and if you bought the Nifty 50 stocks, and if you held them assiduously for the next five years to 73, you lost almost all your money. And to me, that's risk, not the occurrence of daily fluctuations in the price. Ups and downs don't hurt you as long as the downs aren't permanent and you can live through them and enjoy the ups. Buffett always says something like, I'd rather have a lumpy 15% return than a smooth 10. So, you know, the absence of volatility, smoothness, is not that great a deal. Volatility itself is not such a big deal either. The really big deal is losing money. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's an example of the experience that I had that that brought me to that realization. I also kind of want to talk about the way you kind of view the the stock. You talk about, you know, you don't know the future, so uh, you have to know what you do know. And you kind of relate this to a metaphor about ticket bulls. Uh, Could you kind of briefly describe that metaphor? Because I feel like it'd be very helpful to kind of simplify. You know, I think think a good way to think about the future in investments is to think about, as you say, a bowl full of lottery tickets. And you have, you're holding a lottery ticket. Everybody else has a lottery ticket and there are a lot of tickets in the bowl. The question is which one will be chosen? And let's assume that there's a payoff for a black ball being pulled from the bowl. If you, you can buy a ticket in the lottery and if a black ball is chosen, you get paid. And if a white ball is chosen, you lose your money. So the question is, what's going to be chosen? Now, you know that there are some black balls and some white balls in the bowl. So in essence, in advance, you don't know what's going to be chosen. The way I think about this, uh, Roland, is to say, does that mean we can't intelligently play the game? If there are black balls and white balls, and, there's, and if it's black, if you win, and white, you lose, does that mean that there's no such thing as playing the game intelligently? And the answer is no, because you may not know which ball is going to be chosen. And in life, we rarely do. But you may be able to deduce through your intelligence, hard work, and skill that there are more black balls than white. 
if the odds are in your favor, if, the, if there are more black balls than white balls, then you should play. On the other hand, at another time, you may conclude that there are more white balls than black. You're unlikely to be paid off. The odds are against you. You'll probably lose your money. Not every time, but more often than not. Then why play? Uh, unless the odds are, you know, unless the payoff is, is, is uh, advantageous. So that's, that's kind of my way of thinking. We don't know what ball is going to be chosen, and we almost never do. Think about it. You only know if, what's going to happen if it's only black balls or only white balls in the bowl, and that's rarely the case. But most of the time, there are black balls and white balls. But I think that if we work really hard and if we look at things objectively and if we're intelligent and, and, and experienced, I think we can figure out, as you say, what is the probability distribution? What are the likely outcomes and how likely is each one? So we can know something about the bowls in the bowl and we can bet intelligently based on that knowledge, but we just can't know for sure. But I still think we can get the odds on our side. And uh, my latest book, Mastering the Market Cycle, that's the, that's the subtitle, Getting yes. the Odds on Your Side. Yeah. And that is our goal as investors. Going back or continue really on the topic of risk, you, you mentioned also that risk only manifests whenever a negative event occurs. And I think your memos are really well known for their simplicity. And I think really one of the cool things about your memos is that you include matrices sometimes. And you say, you know, if there is a, a, four, a two by two matrix and it kind of outlines how if a negative event occurs and you've taken more risk in the market, then you lose more money, right? So right. could you t kind of talk about the idea of how the outcome, right, can't really tell you the quality of the decision or could, could you kind of talk about that idea? Sure. First of all, as you say, there may be risk may be present, but it only produces loss when there are negative events. Now, you, like the old me, live in California. And in California, we have earthquakes. And you may live in a house that has a construction flaw. And that construction flaw may represent a risk. But that construction flaw or risk is, is only going to produce a loss when there's a negative event, that is to say, an earthquake. So you must realize that risk and loss are two different things. Loss is what happens when risk collides with negative events. And uh, now remind me of the second half of your question. Well, that, that pretty much answered it. It was just kind of like the relationship between, you know, yeah, risk and loss. So, yeah, that was a... So, so yeah, well, and you, you mentioned the matrix. So let's talk about the matrix. Yes. So yeah. you, have a, you, have, you have a two by two matrix. And on one side... You have above average loss and below average loss. And on the other, and uh, let's say on the horizontal axis, and then on the vertical axis, you have good outcomes and bad outcomes, favorable outcomes and unfavorable outcomes. So if you have above average risk and favorable outcomes, then you get above average returns. And if you have above average risk and unfavorable outcomes, then you have above average losses. If you have below average risk and favorable outcomes, then you have below average gains. And if you have below average risk and unfavorable outcomes, then you have below average losses. So you can see that there is no strategy, either above average risk or below average risk, that will always produce above average results. That's why either being a risky investor or a safe investor is not in itself a route to success. And you have to aim for and achieve the asymmetry I described. That's the only way that you can have above average results under one set of outcomes without the risk of below average results under the other. Could you talk a little bit about the idea of that asymmetry that all investors are trying to achieve, plus the idea of alpha, or the idea that it's the investor's kind of own skill uh, that's yes, adding sure. value? Yeah. At Chicago, they broke down the performance of an investment portfolio as consisting of three elements, alpha plus beta times X, where X is the performance of the market, beta is your own portfolio's relative sensitivity to market movements, 
And alpha is the contribution to the return from personal skill. Now, when I went to Chicago, they, they argued that the market was efficient. Assets are priced fairly and right. There are no bargains to find. There are no overpricings to pay. So there's no such thing as skill. And all returns came from beta times X. So if the market's up 10 and your beta is 1, you're up 10. If the market's up 10 and your beta is 2, you're up 20. If, you're, if the market's up 10 and your beta is a half, you're up 5. Beta times X. And you know there, there are markets which are described today as beta markets, which are mostly the public liquid stock and bond markets, where it is believed that most of the return comes from the performance of the market times the beta. And very little of the return comes from alpha or superior personal skill. Uh, where I work in alternative investments, we hope there is alpha. And uh, of course, we hope we have it. And we hope there are mispricings. And we hope that we're smart enough to find them. So if the market is up 10 and your beta is 1, you're an average person in terms of relative sensitivity, then you're up 10. Except that if you have Alpha, which is the personal skill sufficient to add a few percent, maybe you're up 13 when the market's up 10, and then you're considered a superior investor. And then, let's say a bad year comes along, and the market is down 15. And since your beta is one, you would be down 15, except that, again, you have personal skill, which is able to contribute a few percent to the performance. So maybe you're only down 11. So if the market's down 15 and you're down 11, then they say, oh, look at that smart guy. Now, asymmetry comes from alpha. They're really the embodiment of each other. And if the market's up 10 and you're up 13, and the market's down 15 and you're down 11, that means you outperformed on the way up and you outperformed on the way down. And, and, and you're one of the best investors in the world. So. That's why I say the goal is asymmetry. Yeah. And it comes from alpha or personal skill. Gotcha. So asymmetry comes from alpha or your you know, personal yeah. skill. The switching gears a little bit, as first-time investors, you know, high school students and college students, as many of them are first-time investors, they seem to not realize that when they invest, they're not just investing on some number on a screen that's going up and down and there's a chart attached to it, but that there's actually some entity that's receiving investment only wants a certain amount and that there's only a, a finite amount of dollars that are backing investments right now. And there's this kind of two-way demand between entities looking to get financed and those entities like you know Oak Tree that are looking to invest and finance. So what happens when the demand for one exceeds the other? Well, without reference to investment, if we just think about microeconomics, which is called price theory, we know that if the demand holds steady, and the supply goes down, then the demand overwhelms the supply and the price goes up. And if the supply holds steady and the demand goes up, then the price goes up. So the price of everything in the world, other than goods where the prices are controlled, are determined by supply and demand. And that includes investing too. So when people get too excited about owning securities and desire too strongly to own them and demand them and compete to buy them, then the price goes up. And the price might exceed what we call the intrinsic value, in which case that might be a poor investment. Could you kind of talk about how that ties into the ideas of risk premiums and risk compensation and kind of define those two? Well, I mean, I think that the way investors should work is they should look at a company, they should figure out what we call the intrinsic value of a share of stock, and they should then open the newspaper and look at the price of the stock and see if the price is higher or lower. If the price of the stock you're interested in exceeds the intrinsic value, then chances are the odds are against you. The probability of a gain is low. The probability of a loss is high. The risk is high. The expected return is low. But if you can buy a share of stock for less than the intrinsic value, and if your analysis is of the intrinsic value is correct, then the odds are in your favor. It'll be easier to make money and hard to lose money. And the return can be high, and the risk is probably low. So 
to me, as you say, investing is not just guessing on the direction of the stock market or of the movement of the stock price. It's not just saying, oh, it went up for three days in a row, so it probably will go up fourth, or you know, it's been up strongly this year, so it'll probably continue. That's kind of investing in the face of ignorance. That's buying something that you know nothing fundamental about. You're only making a bet on whether or not a good trend will continue. That's not intelligent. Intelligent investing consists of understanding what the stock is, what the company does, uh, how its business is doing, how it's likely to do in the future, what a share of stock has in terms of intrinsic value, and then looking to see if the price exceeds or is less than the intrinsic value. That's intelligent investing. It's a lot more work. It's a lot of it's a lot of work as compared to looking on the screen and saying, oh, you know, it's been up for four days. I, maybe it'll go up the fifth. But all you're doing is taking a flyer and you're you're betting on your continued good luck, which is not much of a plan. I would argue against that. So understanding, as you say, that there's something behind the stock and that's a company, and understanding that buying shares means buying a piece of a company. And hopefully you would only do that if you knew something about the company and consequently what the share is worth. Right. And it's kind of a characteristic, I guess, of first time investors to somewhat extrapolate beyond just the past trends into the future, I guess, too. Um, Not just first time. Lots of people do it, even old timers. And by the way, if something's been going up for several weeks in a row, people who don't own it start to get jealous. And they say, you know, I, I feel so terrible because everybody else is making money in that and I'm not and I can't stand the pressure. So I'm going to capitulate and buy some, even though I don't know anything about it. it happens all the time. Now, people aren't always so honest about what their motivation is. Sometimes they can dress that motivation up in some more elegant clothing. But oftentimes it is just jealousy. There's a book written by a guy named Kindleberger about booms and panics and crashes and that kind of thing. And he has a great quote. He says, there's nothing so injurious to your mental well-being as to watch a friend get rich. And envy is a very powerful force. And, and when people see a stock go up, 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 and they don't own it, sometimes they capitulate and jump on board, but usually at too high a price and with bad results. Yeah, I'll, well, we'll include the link to that book in the description. And you were kind of talking about the forces, envy, jealousy, that all contribute to creating a market cycle. So uh, could you mm-hmm. kind of talk about these these forces and, and the market cycle, obviously, is, you know, you have excesses and then you have corrections, crests and troughs. Could you kind of talk about the different emotions, factors at play at different stages of the cycle? Sure. Well, look, a market, it's very important to your listeners to take note. A market, it's not a thing. It's not an institution. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's not even a bunch of computers. A market is a bunch of people. People who make buying and selling decisions every day. And sometimes, being human, they make mistakes. What do we say? They're only human. And sometimes, they get too excited and pay too high a price and lose money. And sometimes they get depressed because things have been going badly and they sell at too low a price and they missed out, missed out on future gains. So sometimes people are greedy and pay too much. Sometimes they're fearful. They sell too low. Sometimes they're optimistic. Sometimes they're pessimistic. Sometimes they're credulous. Sometimes they're skeptical. Sometimes they like the idea of risk because they think that risk bearing will be profitable if the market goes up. Sometimes they hate the idea of risk because they think that risk bearing will be painful if the risk goes down. So, you know, the greatest fluctuations in the market occur not because the economy got better or worse or because the company did better or worse, but because people are at an extreme positive or an extreme negative. We want to understand this behavioral stuff and we want to take advantage of it as intelligent investors rather than succumb to it as part of the crowd. It's as simple as that. I think one of the really well-known examples of an extreme negative was the the financial crisis 
Uh, what was kind of going through your mind as you saw all these bankruptcies and, and all these you know, failings happening? Well, look, it was a terrible time. The financial institutions and the financial system were cascading downward. We saw Bear Stearns fail and have to be acquired by J.P. Morgan. We saw Merrill Lynch on the brink of failure and have to be acquired by Bank of America. We saw many, many banks fail. AIG failed and, and so forth. And it appeared to be, it had the feeling of, especially when you add in the cascading negative emotions, it had the feeling of, of a downward spiral, what we call a vicious circle, a series of events which was negative and could not be interrupted. And a lot of people acted as if the financial crisis would go on unabated and the financial system would collapse and it would be a total disaster. And of course, those people were, number one, willing to sell their securities at any price, even if it was too low. And number two, they were certainly unwilling to buy, even though the prices were very low. So we thought we had assembled a bunch of capital in the hope that an environment like that would unfold, and it did. We had the benefit at that time of, well, I, at that time I'd been in the investment 40 years, and my colleagues and I had been working together 20 years or, and been through some other ups and downs. And, you know, we concluded, number one, that great bargains were available, providing the world didn't end. And most of the time, the world doesn't end. And also that it was our job to buy in those bargains. And if the financial world collapsed, it wouldn't matter what we did. But if the financial world didn't collapse and we hadn't bought, then we didn't do our job. So that was kind of our thought process. Nobody could prove, Rowan, that the world wouldn't collapse and that all the money in the world wouldn't become worthless. You couldn't prove it. And if you think about it, you can, you rarely can prove anything about the future. But for us, the reasoning that I just laid out for you was our reasoning and it was sufficient to get us to buy. And we thought we were making great bargain purchases. Now we had lived through prior bad cycles, so we were, were able to do these things. We we were able to keep our emotions under control, which is extremely important. And uh, so Oak Tree as a whole invested something like $650 million a week on average for the last 15 weeks of 2008, which it adds up to 10 billion, and uh, of course it was it was a great time to buy be a buyer of assets. Why? Because the world didn't end, and uh, that's really the story of how you can take advantage of an extreme negative cycle. During the the crisis, right? There was this sort of you, you wrote a memo, "Race to the Bottom," that was kind of outlining all this money kind of being put into all these very risky mortgage-backed securities and, and all those types of investments. Could you, for our listeners, define but also explain the idea of cheap money and what a race to the bottom really is as it applies to investing? Well, most markets, I mean, when you study economics, you learn about markets. A market is a place where people meet, whether it's physically or virtually, to buy and sell stuff. That's what a market is, stock market, bond market, shoe market, flower market, art market, gold market, whatever it is. It's people go there to buy and sell. Now, as I said before, as you mentioned about supply and demand, if either the buyers, if the buyers predominate, if there are more buyers and they're more highly motivated than the sellers, then the prices will go up. And if there are more sellers and they're more highly motivated than the buyer, then the prices will go down. So it's the behavior of the participants in the market that causes direction of, of prices. If So what the what race to the bottom, which I wrote in February 07, which is kind of on the doorstep of the financial crisis, what, what it said is that in an auction, the thing that's being auctioned off goes to the highest bidder. And if there are a lot of buyers... And if the buyers outnumber the sellers, and if the buyers have a ton of money, 
And if the buyers are highly motivated to put that money to work, that money's burning a hole in their pocket, and maybe they're professional investors, and for competitive reasons, they can't sit there with uninvested money. When all those things are true, then obviously the bidding in the auction will, will go too far. The thing that's being auctioned off will go at too high a price, at which point purchase will be a dangerous one. And basically, that's what I thought was going on in February 07. And I think that it turned out that that what was going on. And, uh, you know, the, the buyers were eager and overcapitalized. And as a result, the prices went too high. And when the price goes high, the risk is high and the prospect of return is low. And that was the case. And basically, that's why we had the crisis. I think that's a really important point to remember that the, the higher the price, the, the greater the risk that you have greater losses as well when the price comes down. And All I think- things being equal. Now, it's important to say when you make statements like that, Rowan, it's very important to say all things being equal. Sure. It, it, it all depends on what you're getting for your money. Uh, you know, if you, if you, if you, you can't say that a $10 shirt is a worse buy than a $5 shirt because, uh, you know, maybe you get such a great shirt for 10 bucks. It, it's a much better buy than the $5 shirt, which is a piece of junk. So, you know, we, we must be clear to our listeners that when we saw high price, we're not talking about a big number. We're talking about what it costs and what you get for your money. That's what it's all about. Right. Difference between price and value. Right. Yep. Yep. Good. Could you kind of talk about the different stages of a bull market and a bear market? Back in the early 70s, I don't imagine many of your listeners were investing at that time or even maybe alive. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody said to me that they wanted to tell me about what they called the three stages of a bull market. Now, a bull market is a strong market, a rising market, positive market. And This person said to me, there are three stages. The first stage, when only a few independent-minded, unusually perceptive people believe that there could be improvement. The second stage, when most people recognize that improvement is taking place. And the third stage, when everybody and his brother thinks things can only get better forever. Now, this is so true. And it, of course, it's a characterization, but it's, it's so important to interiorize this example. In the first stage, if you are one of the few people who realize things could get better, and when we say things could get better, we mean the economy could improve, the market could go up, or a certain company could increase its profits, or a stock price could rise. If you're one of the few who recognize the potential for improvement, then obviously you are going to buy that stock at a low price because nobody else is excited about it, because there's no optimism and there's no buying in that stock. And if you pay a low price, again, the odds are in your favor. You're looking at a high return without much risk. But if you buy in the third stage, when everybody thinks things can only get better forever, then there's so much optimism. The expectations are so high and so much favorable sentiment is reflected by investors that chances are that the price is too high. And at that point, then the odds are against you. The probability of loss is high. The probability of further gains is low and the risk is high. So it means a tremendous amount, whether you're buying in a period of optimism or pessimism. And um, this is the the polarity, the swing that I that you and I mentioned earlier. But you want to know if the other buyers are optimistic or pessimistic. You want to buy when they're pessimistic, and you want to sell when they're optimistic. And by the way, you might want to sell it to them. They're pessimistic and depressed. They sell it to you cheap. The price goes up. They get excited. Now they're optimistic and greedy. You sell it to them when the price is high. So I think that the, the three stages of a bull market, is this is not a scientific description, but this is a pretty good encapsulation of how things occur. Right. And I guess for the bear market is when, you know, kind of the flip side of the yeah. bull market. Yep. And I want to kind of visit this idea of money sort of being the ultimate commodity in the sense that my $100 would be the same as your $100, right? Um, and then... Yep. 
there's the idea that whether you have expensive or cheap money. So could you kind of define um, cheap money? Because maybe it's not sometimes clear to to other people, you know, the idea of cheap money or, or you know, more expensive. Well, I money. think by cheap money, you mean plentiful money. And, and, and sometimes in the world, there's money every place begging to get put to work. And consequently, you have investors who are willing to pay high prices to employ their money. And sometimes money is scarce. Nobody's eager to put it to work. And assets can languish cheap because nobody's willing to buy them. So again, this is another thing. You want to, you want to assess the climate. Is money plentiful or scarce? Are investors eager or reticent? You know, my new book, Mastering the Market Cycle, is, is all about these swings in psychology. I guess the most cheap money would be available at the time when everyone's optimistic, when everyone's thinking, if I invest, it'll actually, you know, provide good returns. But in fact, that's the time that's, we're at the, the top of the market cycle when everything is you know, seeming to be good. Well, money's pretty cheap today. You could, uh, interest rates are some of the lowest in history. Money is plentiful. It's easier to get a loan from a bank. It's easier to find for investors like me to find clients who, who want to put money into my markets. So again, yeah, a lot of money around, prices high, prospective returns low, risk high. And this is the, this is the identity that we have to work to distinguish. I want to sort of talk about the role history plays in investor psychology and the fact that history, like no one could have predicted based on the past leading up to the financial crisis that, you know, it could have been that bad. So how should we think about history and how should beginner investors sort of involve history in their thinking about investments? Well, you know, there was a philosopher named Santayana who said that those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. History is littered with people who made mistakes. And if you learn from the mistakes of others in history, you don't have to make them yourself. But if you are ignorant of history, then you will have to make those same mistakes in order to learn the lessons. Now, in theory, the great thing about being a human, as opposed to uh, other species, is that humans can learn things without experiencing them. And as a consequence, they don't have to learn through trial and error. But that's only true if you educate yourself. And, you know, one of the best ways to educate yourself about the things we've been discussing today and their historical perspective is to study history. And, you know, in history, if you study it, you can assess what made the market go up at a certain point in time and what made the market go down at a certain point of time. And are those conditions out there today? And do we have to worry about them? Are they creating risk or are they creating opportunity? So I think it's extremely important to understand financial history if you're going to be involved in the area of finance. And certainly when I was younger, I spent a lot of my time understanding history. And the cycles that you've been talking about are what create the risk. When the market is high in its cycle, the probability is against you. The probability of high returns is poor. The probability of loss of money is high. And the reverse is true when the market is low in its cycle. So you have to understand the history of cycles, what makes cycles, what causes them, what have some historical cycles look like, and what can we learn from them in order to, as I said before, benefit from cycles as opposed to being victimized by cycles. You want to buy low and sell high. Everything in the human condition conspires to make people buy high and sell low, buy high when they're optimistic and sell low when they're depressed. So if you study history and you understand this process, then hopefully you can resist it. Yeah, so we, we don't have much more time left, but I do have one final question. And it, it's, you know, you have two children, right? Right. And I was just wondering, you know, what all did you teach them about finance, investing when they were, you know, my age, when they were 17 or, you know, just starting college? 
Well, I probably started talking to my son at the dinner table around 13, and he was really interested in in, uh, learning this stuff and studying history, but he was also very interested in making money. And so, you know, we talked about history and what the market did in that period and why it did it, especially what mistakes others were making. I think that the most important thing to study is what mistakes are being perpetrated today and how can we avoid being part of that. So we always talked about that stuff and we've always had that in common. My daughter was not that commercial. She wasn't that crazy about making a lot more money and she was more artistic. And uh, so we didn't talk too much business in the early days, but now she's come around and she's learned a lot. Now she's still not what I would call mercenary, but now she understands the, the realities of economics and what makes an enterprise successful or unsuccessful and, and what things do you have to think about before you engage in an activity. So, uh, she, you know, she's been a great success and, and she's now very, very smart about the ways of the world. And, and you know, as you can imagine, you know, raising kids and seeing them grow to a place where you're happy with who they are and what they do is is the greatest reward in the world. I think that's a fantastic place to finish this great conversation up. Thank you so much for, for doing this, Howard. Uh, it was a great conversation. Pleasure, well, I hope, the, I hope the young people who are listening will be interested in this stuff, will understand that it's complex, and will put in the effort to understand the the realities in depth. But it's a fascinating field where there's no technique which always works. Every day you have to invent a new solution. And uh, it's challenging, but it's also very, very rewarding. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. It truly means the world to us. Please give us your thoughts and feedback on today's episode, what you liked, disliked, and what we could do better. Once again, thanks to the legendary Howard Marks for the amazing conversation. I hope you guys learned more about risk and market cycles in this episode. Once again, we are really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email streetfins at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content, and to subscribe to our newsletter. Join the StreetFins community and follow us on social media, links in the description, and share us with your friends so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.